My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. This is Invisible Tears. Hi, I'm Jane, and I'm here with my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hello. And this is Invisible Tears. We had the pleasures of interviewing John Philbin. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was such a fantastic interview. And for those of you that don't know who John Philbin is, definitely do some research on him. He's an amazing man with an amazing career. He's an independent criminal profiler and a retired psychologist. He has an international reputation as being the expert on violent behavior. With this, he's appeared on numerous shows. He's also contributed to many books, given that he was a consultant. He's also written several books of his own. He's received numerous awards for his contribution into uh, murder investigations. Um, and his forensic work. Um, He also holds degrees in English, clinical psychology, and forensic psychology from Harvard and Goddard College. And Jane met John because he was part of the Connecticut River Valley Serial Killer Task Force. Yeah, uh, the first time I met him, he was my first hypnosis session. I met up with him again, and we had a second hypnosis session. And we stayed connected all these years, 30-plus years. Um, Incredible man, um, extremely compassionate. It amazes me on how he has studied so much evil, but yet stays so compassionate Mm -hmm. and just so humble. Yeah. Very humble. Yeah, absolutely. When you're sort of immersed in that world. And I think that you all will hear this too um, as we play cuts of the interview with him. Um, When you're immersed in that world uh, and you have to sort of try to uh, put yourself into a different set of, you know, morals and values, um, it could be very hard to pull yourself out of that world. Um, but yes, he's an extremely intelligent and compassionate man, and you guys will definitely hear that throughout this interview. And so John starts off with just explaining where it all began. I developed an interest in violent behavior growing up. I was the seventh child in what was a fairly violent family uh, in a violent neighborhood. I do remember being very curious why people would do things like this to each other for what seemed to me to be little or no provocation. I learned very early to read bodies, to, uh, to, to read faces, to read lips for that matter. The experience in the hospital Uh, not just with the kids, if there were emergencies involving adult patients, uh, male staff were were called in for restraint purposes. And um, there were very few of us, about a thousand patients, I believe, at the time in the hospital. And uh, there weren't that many male staff. They were, most of them had been drafted. That was where I experienced a resurgence of this whole interest because It just seemed like out of the blue, these violent episodes could begin. And um, and I started uh, looking at it more closely. I uh, became friendly with a psychiatrist who was something of an expert on uh, violence. And uh, I used to talk a great deal with him. 
and uh, I had uh, several experiences where I just I, I just felt that I, I needed to know more. I, wa- I wanted to know why these things happened. I, I also had this uh, streak in me that was not only opposed to war, but uh, you know opposed to any kind of individual act of violence uh, committed by by one person against another. And then you know all of a sudden it was people who didn't know each other. Uh, and, out of the blue, you know, one person would, would attack another. And I just, I didn't get it. I mean, this was, to me, uh, you know, it was just something that seemed to be a part of the culture, but I, I wanted to know more about it. So I, I uh, did my master's degree work in clinical psychology and then went on uh, for my PhD, which I decided should be in forensic psychology. And by then, I'd begun a... a Psychology, whatever they call it, internship um, in a in a group practice, and the first major contract I had was uh, with the state corrections uh, department. And you know, if if you want to study violence, I can't think of a better place to do it than a jail. And so I did. I spent a lot of time in uh, prisons in Vermont. When John is given a case to look at, he first starts with profiling the victim, and then he moves on to the criminology part of the case. You always have to start with the victim in order to know how she, and I use that uh, pronoun advisedly because the vast majority of these, these cases are committed by males against females, and I would want to know her. I, I would I would want to know how she might react in certain situations, that type, that type of thing. And so I began it that way. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize it at the time, but I was developing a system that was you know my own. It was unique. And uh, Quantico was just uh, barely getting started. And it was uh, I think '79 when they started organizing it. It wasn't until about '84 until they were operating full tilt, but at any rate. Then I went to visit uh, the various sites that were involved in the crime, and I got an education for myself, and uh, that was that by doing that, by immersing myself in in, um, especially the the murder site, that... um, there was just a lot of intuitive kind of uh, information available, uh, you know, from from the environment itself, from imagining how it would go down, looking at everything from sticks on the ground, rocks, uh, disturbances in the dirt, the whole thing, and developing what I eventually called the, the uh, choreography of uh, of a crime of murder, and um, from from those experiences, incorporating initially intuitive, so totally subjective uh, feelings, ideas, thoughts about you know what sort of person might do this to another human being, and as I did that, what I had to do was to forego. Uh, my own sense of logic, my own sense of morality, uh, my own sense of reasoning, and try to incorporate what belonged to uh, this killer into my own mind and think with those beliefs, those values, those morals, or lack thereof. And uh, that's, you know, that turned out later on to be kind of a risky business, but I didn't realize it at the time, and I plowed ahead with it. Now, uh, that case uh, did result in a profile, and I'm using the word because everybody does, but I I still don't like it. Anyway, I have to say no profile or whatever else you want to call it ever caught a killer. Never happened. Uh, Not by anyone who wrote it. Um, Also, the initial feeling about these things was that they were some kind of document that you submitted 
and that was it. Your work was done. And that was never the way I viewed it. There was an initial document, yes, but uh, working through any crime is uh, is an organic process uh, because your information is going to change. How can something that is cast in stone six months ago going to help you now? You have 10 new pieces of information. It isn't going to help you. So it was no good from my point of view simply to write a report, submit it, and say, okay, psh, there, I'm done. Nonsense. My philosophy was that once you accept the case, you're in it, you know, un until there is some resolution, if there is a resolution. And that, that was the way I operated. John talks about his interviews with Gary Schaefer, who was arrested and charged with the murder of Katie Richards. John was brought in to work on a local case for Teresa Fenton, who was found murdered and raped in 1980. John believed that Gary Schaefer was responsible for Teresa Fenton. So I had a total of 15 hours. It was five, three-hour sessions with uh, Gary Schaefer. Uh, but I avoided, they were all taped, I avoided saying anything about um, Teresa Fenton. He had not been uh, charged in that case. He was charged with Katie's death. Uh, but he did, he went there himself, and, you know, that was his choice. That was, you know, not something that I forced him to do. And um, eventually, he, over the course of that time, and using a lot of the sort of, you know, interview approaches that, that I had acquired, developed, learned, he openly confessed to, uh, to Katie, um, uh, it was sort of a, a backdoor confession to uh, Teresa. John was then asked to look at the Connecticut River Valley cases. I think I heard something about two New Hampshire women missing within a relatively short period of time, like say within one year. And um, that, you know, they were both. Uh, to some extent involved in, like, nursing aid or, or something along those lines. Uh, they were also both um, considered to be pretty responsible people. Uh, one was uh, Bernice Kudamarsh, and uh, the other was Ellen Freed. And that was right around the two of them, like I say, within a year. And... I remember I started to wonder, you know, these are good, responsible people, dependable people. They go to work on time. They you know, do what they're supposed to do. And so I thought, you know, that it was just very unusual. Then uh, bodies started turning up, I should say remains. And um, that was when I expressed, it might have been Mike Prazo at the time, I think he was the chief in Claremont then. Um, I think what I did was I called him and uh, told him that I had this concern that this kind of, these might be related. There wasn't enough uh, of the remains to be able to determine initially um, what the cause of death had been. But I was familiar with uh, Henry Ryan, a uh, medical examiner in Maine, who had a technique for detecting stab wounds from bones. And um, so I suggested that, and they followed up on it, and sure enough, uh, both women had been stabbed to death. The places where the bodies were found, it was uh, going toward Newport out of Claremont, um, and they were not all that far apart. Their bodies were found 500 feet apart or something like that? So, yes, it was right in the same area, you know, right along that river or whatever that river is, Sugar River maybe, I don't know. And then... Uh, 
you know, it was it was shortly after that Ava Morse vanished. Her body was found more quickly than uh, the others, but by then they they were up to three, and, and you know, really starting to uh, be be concerned that you know they had a serial killer. Shortly after Barbara Agnew's murder, they formed a task force between Vermont and New Hampshire. Right around the time that Barbara Agnew was killed, and that I think was like 86, so say 84, 85, when we started uh, gathering cases from throughout the Northeast uh, to look at them, to look for others. There was a considerable amount of debate. Uh, I, I was a member of the task force, uh, and it was the first interstate task force, uh, interjurisdictional task force that that uh, the two states had had, which had always been sort of a bug to me that you know jurisdictions couldn't cooperate. Well, I this proved that they could. And um, uh, total sharing of information, uh, total sharing of uh, capabilities. And, uh, you know, we conducted several meetings. Well, we had a lot of good input, but it wasn't until Barbara Agnew was killed that we had a call from the New London, New Hampshire Police Department uh, about the Kathy Milligan case. And several of us uh, went over uh, to New London to look at their case file. And um, I took one look at the pictures, and yes, it was Kathy Milligan, but it might as well have been Barbara Agnew. Um, they they were treated almost identically. That was when things kind of went, you know, full bore. We were looking at every uh, lead. We had several suspects. We had, I I don't even remember what the grand total was uh, of the number of similar cases. You know, just enough to kind of bring them into our scope. We looked at upstate New York, had great cooperation from them. We had Vermont, New Hampshire, good cooperation from Massachusetts. We didn't get squat from the state of Maine, and it turned out they had a serious problem over there. After John describes the formation of the task force, he then goes into detail of the suspect's hunting methodology. This guy was a cruiser that uh, he set out knowing what he was going to do, um, not knowing who the victim would be. I uh, call it hunting. Where he might find it. Yes, Jane said that she calls it hunting, is what she actually uh, calls Yes, it, yeah. well, that's yeah. eventually that's what we, we called it, was hunting. We called it a trap line, in fact, mm-hmm. that he had specific places that were, that were on his route. And he may have had more than one route, you know, uh, Gary Schaefer had two or three different routes. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't know that. But uh, as far as having a trap line, a place where he would check, where he considered it highly likely that he would find a lone female victim vulnerable in an isolated place where he was extremely unlikely to be observed. And that's what he was looking for. That's what he was cruising around for. And then I I shifted gears and and kind of went backward to what sets this in motion, what what gets him started. And I figured it was at the level of fantasy that had to be developed into reality. He would have uh, a series of decisions to make how long he was going to stay out, which route he could take, uh, which route was the most likely to produce, you know, something in the trap line, uh, this, this entire sequence, which 
would begin by, I think, creating a degree of agitation that he would feel. But once he's in the car and on the road, it's like a hypnotic experience. He just completely calms down, completely relaxes, knows precisely what he's about. And if if I remember what, what Jane told me years ago, uh, this guy that attacked her seemed uh, almost indifferent, just, you know, kind of blank. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was the kind of thing that was, uh, that was going through my mind back in uh, probably the middle days of the, uh, the task force. A couple of months after my attack, the detectives transported me to Springfield, Vermont, to meet John in his office for one of two hypnosis sessions. I remember several things about that. Uh, one was my own shock when I saw the scars on your neck. You know, I had, we had been sitting there talking, and I don't think we'd gotten anything into anything, you know, substantive yet. And uh, we're just sort of chatting. And, uh, and I, I noticed the scars. And, you know, then the first thing that went through my mind was, where did, where did this, you know, poor person, you know, get, get those horrible scars? And uh, that was a, you know, kind of the first time I realized the uh, personal liability. Because I had had this guy, whoever he was, rolling around inside of my head for a long time. And, you know, suddenly I just I, uh, connected myself, you know, with inflicting wounds, and that was a horrible feeling. Um, we went from that into trying to, if I remember right, trying to reconstruct yeah. uh, everything that happened. And you went into some some really uh, detailed information. Uh, yeah, I honestly, know, honestly, I don't remember. I, I know that I was hypnotized, but I don't remember anything I said. I, w I guess I was in a deep hypnosis because I don't remember well, anything. You, you, you were totally relaxed. Uh, I can't, um, you know, gauge, uh, the depth of the hypnosis, but I can say that you were totally relaxed and yet you were talking about some pretty horrendous, uh, things that had happened to you in a, in a fairly calm manner. So, you know, I'd be inclined to agree with you. I think that's was most of the reason why they wanted me to be hypnotized to try to get the license plate or a partial okay. license plate is what I got. Um, but I remember the license plate always being dirty. So I think that's why we never really got a real accurate plate. No, and, I remember you saying that. Yeah, I do. So unfortunately we never really got an accurate plate. I don't even think we got the state, did we? We got six six two, I think. Yeah, that's what we had. We tried to go on from there, but that's where it stopped. Six six two, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how did you and John, uh, Jane? How did you guys end up linking up? How did you guys end up um, getting to that hypnosis session? The state police. Um, state police it was. Uh, um, it was New Hampshire's version of Mike LeClaire. Mike LeClaire. Mike LeClaire brought me there oh, okay. and yeah. was hoping that we would be able to get more info, especially the license plate was, was the big focal yeah. point mm -hmm. of the hypnosis. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our episode. Now, did the characteristics of the attacker change in your mind after Jane's attack, or did it just reaffirm what you were thinking uh, prior? Well, it pretty it pretty much reaffirmed what I was thinking. Everything. As far as the investigations, the various investigations by now that, that were, you know, had been going on, if anything, they were rejuvenated um, and people started going over cases again and going over suspects again. You know, all, all of that happened uh, very quickly. In my own mind, this sounded very much like you know, the person we had been looking for. Go Marlowe's uh, may very well have been one of his regular stops. I went down there uh, around midnight one night um, and sat in my car. I was a truck, actually, uh, in front of the, uh, the soda machine. And... Um, you know, just to, to see what, what sort of traffic there was. And the only traffic there was was a, was a woman by herself who uh, uh, went to get a, a, a soft drink, you know. And this was she, after my attack. Yes. Uh, it was after I had seen you at least one of the times. Um but it just occurred to me I, I wanted a feel for the place. The, the most important thing that came out of that for me was the possibility of variation in the color of the vehicle caused by the sodium vapor lights. Yeah, that, that was a question holes. quite a bit, yeah. They were, leaning, <clears throat> you know, they, they were leaning like dark green or brown because of the lighting. Uh, it could have been the range changed just so significantly, you know, of what it would do to various uh, shades of uh, tan, gray, green, whether, you know, it was a, uh, you know, a polished uh, kind of surface or just a flat color. All of that was affected. But that, that was, you know, like the main thing that struck me. That and the isolation, I guess, also was was another part of it. Yeah. Why do you think the Connecticut River Valley murders are unsolved? Well, time went by, as we both know. The A lot of the people, well, some of them have died. A lot of them have retired. I've been retired for 20 years now. Mike LeClaire here in Vermont, he's retired. Yeah, he retired uh, shortly after my attack. I yes, I think yes, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was a whole new crew came in, and it was at the time when. Every department everywhere wanted to have a cold case unit. And I do not have very high opinion, I'm afraid, of cold case units. My ex- experiences with them have been that they go back to, you know, work that was done uh, years before and settle on uh, a suspect who was generated years before, but obviously must have been omitted for some reason or, or you know, um, cleared in some way. And the, the, the kicker for me was the uh, was Linda Moore. The, they kept focusing on Steve. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the poor guy went through uh, two inquests in Vermont, three polygraphs, 
you know, spaced over time, obviously. And he was cleared. Plus, his, his alibi was solid. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this cold case unit, um, I had one meeting uh, that I attended um, maybe four or five years ago when they were getting this thing rolling again. And, and I asked the stupid question about suspects and um, well we're taking a closer look at uh, Steve Uh. and that was that was it for me you know I mean this guy had been cleared in so many ways so many ways that that poor man had gone through so much with them I've met him and he he just he's gone through so much with them he he He's cleared himself over and over and over again. Yes. And they just keep yes. going back to him, and I don't get it. Yeah. it no, 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 nor do I. I don't get it either. No. I, I think it's these new people coming in. They're younger. They, they want to establish themselves. They want to make a mark. And... They have what they have, and that's the same information that we had. Now, you know, how far did we get? Uh, we didn't get very far. Exactly. Um, and, you know, they would have to generate new information. They would have to find new approaches. I kept suggesting for a couple of years that they, they start doing some making use of media more. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my idea at the time was uh, to say something about uh, there being, you know, announce it as as if it were a new investigation, and you know that people had who had been talked to in the past would be uh, interviewed again, and there were some new people to interview, even if there weren't, it didn't matter. You yeah, know, just generate a li- just a little bit of anxiety. Um, well, I know New Hampshire um, has a cold case website, and I've yeah. always been on that website. My attack related to the Connecticut River Valley murders, and so has yeah. Linda Moore. Now, I went on yes. there about a month ago, and I was removed, and so wasn't Linda Moore. Which doesn't make any sense to me. We've always been on there, but all of a sudden no. we're removed off the that list. And yeah. I, I just, I, I'm confused by that. I, I'm so confused oh, by that. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't see why they would do that. I have no idea why they would do that. It doesn't make the, sense, the does it? Thing, no, it makes no sense at all. The, the other thing that uh, bothers me tremendously is this whole question of uh, the, the possibility of, uh, of forensic testing of some uh, residue information, uh, hair, or fiber, or whatever it is. I don't even know what it is. Well, I have um, to say, I went up there about 10 years ago and asked, because now DNA is, is available, and I can remember when I was in the hospital right after my attack, they scraped my fingernails. Um, yes. And supposedly they kept it. So about 10 years ago, I went up and, and started questioning about my evidence because, I mean, now that DNA is, is out, why aren't they starting to, you know, test my evidence for this DNA, any kind of DNA they can find? And right. I went up there and... Um, I was told all my evidence is gone. Okay, did they say why? Um, no, he had no answer to that. And it, it, after he went in, um, he was gone for about 45 minutes and came back. Put, he put me in this little room, came back, and he said the evidence to, to my case is gone. He couldn't talk about it anymore, and he's sorry that he couldn't give me any more information. But the funny thing is, then they called me two years ago and said, um, and, and I haven't heard from them all these years, and they called me about two years ago and said, um, we're reinvestigating your case. We 
are going through fingerprints. Can you come and get re-fingerprinted? Okay, I've been fingerprinted already, but yes, I can I can go and get re-fingerprinted. And they said, okay, we'll call you, um, you know, try and arrange something in a couple of weeks. That was two years ago, and I still haven't heard back from them. So I don't know if they found my fingerprints or what, but I, I, I haven't heard from them in two years, ever since okay. that. You're getting the same runaround from them that, I think her name is Anna Agnew. Anna Agnew, sister. yes, yes. All right, that she's getting from uh, the Vermont side about about Barbara. Exactly. Um, they, well, the story changes. It depends. Uh, sometimes, oh, that's gone. Sometimes uh, we had a couple of floods over here, and uh, one of the evidence uh, depots, um, they're always in the basement, by the way, got flooded, and a lot of evidence was destroyed. And we get that story. We get there never was any evidence. Um <laughs> In, in the Linda Moore case, it started out with that one broken fingernail. Well, that was never tested, you know, for DNA. Everybody knew that the fingernail existed. Yeah. And yet for a while they were saying they couldn't find it. Uh, they don't know what happened to it. Maybe it got lost in a move. All right. Well, then I, 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 somebody asked me to. I can't remember why. To go back and look at um, Dr. McQuillan's autopsy report on Linda Moore, I did that. It wasn't just one nail. There were three. And whatever testing was done back at the time uh, eliminated Steve, but there was a foreign DNA male uh, on one of those nails. You, you can't get any further information. I mean, you would think that they would run it through CODIS. Yeah, well, one would hope. <laughs> I just, I, I, I think the reason why a lot of these cases, or all these cases aren't solved, is a lot of missed opportunities. I, well, I just don't understand it. Missed opportunity, and I, and I think not understanding the dynamic that's involved w with uh, with a string of assaults and murders like this, well, it stopped. Okay. You know, that's another one you hear, by the way, that you were the last. Well, that's a good question, stopped. too, John. Why do you think it stopped after my attack? Uh, there's a couple of possibilities. Uh, you know, one would be that uh, the guy is dead. One would be that he was arrested on some other uh, charge somewhere and is serving time. Um, another would be that he'd moved from the area. I mean, there are a lot of possibilities. Um, typically, these people, uh, in my experience anyway, uh, sometimes can go long periods of time, I'm talking years, without a repetition of the behavior and then suddenly have it emerge again. There's so much we don't know about how these people operate in the wild. You know, all of the all of the research that's been done has been done with offenders who are incarcerated. And they have plenty of time to put together their own agenda. You go in there with a, a questionnaire, which is the way they do it, and uh, you're wearing a suit and tie, and that guy's wearing chains and an orange jumpsuit, you've immediately created a distance between you and him. Yeah, exactly. And you haven't exactly invited him to be cooperative with you at that point. And then you're restricting the range of the conversation by adhering to this stupid questionnaire. You know, I never, I never used a questionnaire. I, I went in and freelanced it. I mean, we were going to chat, and sometimes uh, the Gainesville guy comes to mind, Danny Rowling, Florida student killer. We must have just uh, talked about everything from uh, fishing to uh, 
you know, him telling me what it was like to live uh, near the bayous in uh, Louisiana. You know, but then he made the transition, I didn't, into his quote-unquote love life. And that's where I started to get some meaningful information about what went down in Florida. But when you impose all of this structure, you know, what you're doing is you're sending this guy a message that you are somehow in control over him. And you are not. Unless you let him go and just talk about what he wants to talk about. It's okay, so he has an agenda. Let him run it through, and then once it's done, just start talking to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is going to sound terrible to you, I'm sure, but regardless of the fact that the person sitting across from you at the table is a horrible, evil, destructive person, he's still a human being. Okay, yeah, I have a hard time with that. (laughs) I I do, because I I feel that... He had no, he has no remorse for what he done to me. So why should I consider him any kind of a human being? Because what kind of a human being does that to somebody, you know, who who, who attacks a woman that's seven months pregnant and stabs her 27 times? That, that, to me, that's not a human. That's a monster. I couldn't agree with you more, but. You aren't the one walking into the room to sit down and talk with him. And you're, you're, that's right. That's true. That's true. You know, and so, yes, it takes an adjustment on my part. But if I can see him just for the sake of the conversation we're going to have as a, as a, as a human being um, and treat him that way and shoot the breeze and talk about what it was like growing up, and pretty soon, you know, I'm going to start to get some relevant information. You know, one of the complaints I've often had is that the, my process takes too long. Well, that's true. It does. It takes a long time. Gary Schaefer's situation was 15 hours. But I do get the information. Exactly. If you're getting the information, it shouldn't matter how long it takes. Yes, you're effective. No, it doesn't. <laughs> You, you can't, the other thing is, you know, the, the attitude is one of like, it has to be something, this information, as they get it on their questionnaires, has to be set up in such a way that it can be put into a computer and, you know, put out on a spreadsheet, and then they can compare and they can give you percentages about this and percentages, but percentages aren't going to help. Every case is different. Every person is different and they just don't seem to understand that john you have studied so much evil how do you separate that evil you you study at work how do you separate that from your home life or do you do you take it home with you have you Uh, taken it home with you i didn't uh in the beginning and I think I mentioned this, I, I, I didn't realize uh, the nature of the risks I was running. And I did, it did go home with me. It was impossible to escape. And that's right from case one, Teresa, uh, 12-year-old kid, my God, that haunted me. It disturbs your sleep. It becomes a distraction. You find yourself thinking about it. You know, you're trying to enjoy your lunch and but your head is somewhere, you know, totally different. Um, and, and that, you know, goes on for a lengthy period of time. And fortunately, you know, I, I realized it uh, after maybe 15 years, you know, and I could see that it was really starting to, to wear me down. And... Uh, you know, I had to make some real changes in my uh, my lifestyle, you know, which I did do. And, you know, that seems to have, uh, seems to have worked out. Now, you're married. Yes, very happily, 52, going on 53 years. Oh, congrats. Congratulations. Yeah, really, that's great. <laughs> and I believe her no, name... What's that? I believe her name is Jane. 
genius. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, we we we, uh, we I like to say we met in a mental mental hospital, <laughs> um, which you know immediately gets people wondering. She was an occupational therapist, and I was a counselor, and we met at Mass Mental, and uh, have been together ever since. And, and this was no picnic for her either, you know. Uh, and I had, at the time I started all of this, I, I had a little one. My son Stephen was, uh, I think, five when I first started going to jails, and that used to worry him sick. He was afraid they wouldn't let me out. Uh, they wouldn't feed me. Um, and I'd get these gigantic hugs, you know, at the end of the day when I got home. That must have been nice. Yeah, well, it was, but I, you know, I had to do my best to reassure him. You know, I'd say I'm there on business. You know, I'm not, I'm not, they're not going to keep me there. They can't keep me there. You know, and I would try to reassure him in a lot of different ways. But, and then when, uh, you know, Teresa Fenton case happened, I was distracted quite a bit. And, and I made some, uh, you know, unusual uh, trips that, you know, consumed time that I might otherwise have been spending with him. And I regret that. But, you know, when it was time to get my act together, I, you know, I think I was able to do that. He and I have a great relationship now. Of course, he's, what, uh, 45 years old now. And you're retired, so that that gives you time yes. together. Yes, and I and I don't I don't read those books anymore. In fact, uh, when I closed my practice and declared myself retired, I you know I still had a few cases. I had a guy in Maine who had been in jail for 27 years. He never committed the crime, and I, I did that one. Just you know, he didn't have any money. I didn't care about that anyway. And, you know, I worked with some, some folks over there and uh, one retired guy from the FBI who was quite good, actually, surprised me. Um, and uh, he's, he's out now. Um, the, the court ended up agreeing that he was, not, he was 16 when he went in. He was 44 when he came out for a crime he did not commit. Wow. wow. Um, you know, that, that was a different year for me altogether. But... Uh, no, I I, um, I switched, and uh, I do read occasionally, uh, uh, so, you know, some political analysis type type books, and I've decided that they're just as evil as the uh, the other stuff I was reading. <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to shift again, you know. Find now else. you did a lot of writing, but you never wrote a book about the Connecticut River Valley murders. No, no, I never did. Well, you know, Phil's book is a definitive book. Um, I, I suppose I could have written one from my point of view, uh, which, you know, the others that I wrote, that's the way they are done. I was uh, uh, consultants in all of those cases. But I didn't feel like, I, you know, I had that much additional to... Uh, to say, to add, uh, you know, to what what Phil had already done. So, um, I think you did. <laughs> well, well, you know, it, it's possible. Uh, I, I I've had two strokes, so I, and they've affected the part of the brain that does uh, all the logic and reasoning and uh, vocabulary. And As we finish up our interview with John. I ask him one last thing. What would you say, what message do you give to victims' families or victims or survivors such as myself? And this was his response. Something akin to uh, your own words about, you know, don't expect it to go away. You know, don't, don't expect the pain to just suddenly disappear the emotional pain. It would be one thing along those lines. I, you, you have to own it. 
you know, it happened to you. It's shaped and will continue to shape your life. That it has. <laughs> that it has. Well, you know, those would be the kinds of things that I would say and, and have said. I, I think the uh, sort of vacuous expressions of, uh, oh, I feel so sorry or bad or my heart goes out, I, I find all of that very tri- trite and, and not particularly informative. I, you know, I would not say something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be as realistic about it as I possibly could. Exactly, and that's—I don't expect any less from you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, it was a horrible situation that brought us into well being together, uh, knowing one another. But you know, I, I admire you, and I realize what you've been through and I think you're going to end up being a much stronger person for it and I think you're going to help a lot of people thank you I hope so oh I know so (laughs) John I can't thank you enough um, for doing this with me Uh, Jane anytime any assistance any anything you've got the number just give me a call I will I will and maybe we'll have to do another one of those lunches down at that. That would be great. And- I would love that. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, hear all future episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current with any events that may be happening with our podcast. Read more about Jane and the team and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you are looking for everyday items, clothes, collectibles, or a gift for that special someone, you can support us further by checking out our retail store, The Frugal Marketplace. We can be found at thefrugalmarketplace.com or search for us on eBay and Poshmark. We hold an online claim sale on Facebook Live every Monday night at 7 p.m. where you can find our latest items for sales or items at a deep discount. If you're local to the area, please stop in and say hi. You can find us at 919 West Swansea Road in Swansea, New Hampshire. The links for our products can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.